level. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pensive Politics with Mr. Watson. I am your host, Christian Watson, and today I am here with uh, Mr. Nick Smith, Nicholas Sarwak, Sarwak the, the chair of the Libertarian National Co- uh, Committee. Uh, uh, the third, starting his third term, which is unprecedented in the history of the party, and perhaps who is going to be one of the most consequential folks in this upcoming election season. Should Mr. Amash's bid uh, uh, hold water? Mr. Sarwak, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great, Christian. It's so good to be on with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. So before I get into anything else, just tell me, how does it feel to be in this moment right now where literally every eye in the media is turned towards your party, the party that you have worked for a good part of the 2010s to build, to energize, to make vibrant again with the fire of liberty. How does it feel now that the, the, all the attention, basically all the attention is becoming, is, is, is centering on your party? It's, it's an amazing experience. I've been part of the Libertarian Party for 22 years, uh, working in the trenches to build it into a vehicle that can change American politics. And at this point where we've now gotten our first congressman in the entire history of the party sitting in office, I feel like the party is ready to go to the next level. And we are the party that's ready to deal with an election in these unprecedented times. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and now a lot of folks, however, have painted in their, in, in their head However true this may be, however false it may be, in my opinion, it is quite a pernicious thought. They have painted in their head this image of libertarians, or the Libertarian Party at least, being a collection of folks who are divorced from reality, who uh, are a little bit eccentric, and who uh, essentially do those two those two prior in their mind ills have very little chance of actually appealing to the general public. Um, I think you and I both know this not to be the case, but. What do you do? What do you do to try to disabuse folks of these foolish notions, so to speak? Because, in all fairness, what happened at the convention, which, as we know, was not someone endorsed by the committee or any, anyone like that, what happened at the convention last time when C-SPAN was broadcasting it, did give a lot of folks a very um, bad taste in their mouths, and a lot of people don't want to inquire or look deeper. They just simply want to look at that and say, okay, libertarians must be crazy. We know that not to be the case, but how do you communicate that to them in a way that is effective in your opinion? One of the things that you can do is don't run away from the fact that we are the most diverse national political party in the country, and a diverse party welcomes all voices. Some voices that might be more professional, um, you know, business owners or lawyers who run for mayors of major cities and present well, and you could feel comfortable having them have the reins of power, and others who are making commentary on the political process and drawing attention to the fact that, you know, politicians make promises that they know are ridiculous. So you have candidates like Vermin Supreme who's saying, I'm promising everyone a free pony. He's not serious about the promise, but he's serious about a commentary about a political system that is fundamentally broken. And sometimes that's the only language you can talk uh, talk to somebody about sure. to, to, to help them understand just the absurdity of a government and a political system between the two old parties where everything can be solved just by spending more taxpayer money 
and nothing gets done. Sure. Sure. Yes. And I think that, that the commentary about this is absolutely brilliant. I think that is something that is very clever that libertarians particularly have a very, uh, a, a very good handle of. But the question becomes as it relates to candidates like Mr. Supreme and so on and so forth. When folks see someone, however brilliant their satire may be with a, a boot on their head and tattered clothes and they're running for president, they can't help but think what's going on here. Do you think there's a crisis in messaging as it relates to Libertarian Party's outreach goals, or do you think that folks are just gonna are gonna eventually come around to the kind of language that the party in party insiders know the party typically uses? So the Libertarian Party's messaging has been a hundred percent on point, as well as it could be, uh, barring any errors that I will take full responsibility for. But over the six years that I've been chairman of the party. I have put out solid messaging on the issues of the day. I've gotten more people to come in who fit that more professional tone. I've talked to more former Republicans and former Democrats who had that misimpression that the Libertarian Party was not serious because they had seen a particular candidate or they would seen a political convention where costumes are all the rage in the two old parties. If you see footage of their conventions, they're colorful events, but they don't accurately reflect who our candidates and our leaders are. You know, candidates that go out and really talk to issues that the people care about. And I think that's the advantage we have as a libertarian party is some of the attention we get is due to some of the more colorful people in the party. But when people start paying attention to the party, they hear a reasonable message uh, they hear a party that's focused on people and empowering them and not on fighting between two angry tribes of political cronies and special interests. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. And so y- would so l- let us let us presume the libertarian party um were to uh well Get a, get a let's say we let's say for 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 theory's sake we get a plurality they get a plurality in in, in Congress or they get a few people in Congress who are uh, who are golden libertarian affiliated with the libertarian party they elected libertarian party um, would they not have to in some way shape or form mold themselves to the mechanisms of the system to be able to survive in the system and uh, what, what I guess what the broader question I'm asking here is wouldn't tribalism since tribalism is in the DNA of the political system on how unfortunate that may be it's, it dates back to the founding of this country unfortunately with the federalists the anti-federalists what, what have you that they would probably themselves get infected with the tribalist spirit do you fear that at all and if you and, and if not why not and if so how do you get around that? Political parties are made up of who shows up, and they're a natural feature of a system of elections that we have. When people share common goals and common values, they work together cooperatively to meet those goals and values, to put them into place. And all political parties are formed of noble purpose. The two old parties used to believe something, and now all they believe is that the other one shouldn't be in charge. It's good for us to be a tribe of libertarians. It's good for us to be loyal to each other and help each other because our goal is fundamentally different. We're still at that stage where we have the noble purpose of Mm -hmm. nothing more or less than a world set free in our lifetime. And we can work together 
and in competition with politicians from the other parties to try and shape a public policy that at least has a push towards a freer Mm -hmm. society with less government involvement in your decisions and more opportunity for you to build something new in your own life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Now, that 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 all that that all sounds perfect and good, but if getting to that point, that sort of utopia where we can do those things and we can have a sort of um, free and open society, especially from political restraints of of of, of the of of the um of the special interested parties, I would say, and getting to that point, would you not would you say that tribalism may be in a may be a method, effective or not, just just or not, ethical or not? I certainly don't think it's ethical, but it may be a method that libertarians may have to use to get to that point. Is that is that a possibility in your mind? Well, so there's a distinction uh, I want to draw that I think will clarify how we are in agreement and we are in disagreement. Right. right Tribalism okay. that is reflexive, where what you're seeing with the sexual assault allegations against Joe Biden, the presumptive Democratic nominee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all of the people in the Me Too movement, these progressive women who have been fighting for better treatment of women in society and to recognize the stories of people who allege that powerful people have used their positions to assault them, right. have twisted themselves into knots to apologize for someone for and make defenses that there's only one allegation of sexual assault. And the person from the other tribe has 25 allegations of sexual assault. And so you should vote for the candidate who only has one. Right. It's the lesser of two evils dichotomy. That's reflexive tribalism, where you will lose your principles to defend a member of your tribe. Libertarians have something different, where we believe so strongly in this idea that You should be free to do whatever you want with your own life to pursue your own happiness as long as you don't hurt people and you don't take their stuff. That we stand for that principle and we stand together for that principle, but we hold ourselves accountable when people don't do that principle, when they don't follow it. There is an example. There was a a candidate who the Libertarian Party had supported in Nevada who voted for public funding of a stadium. And the National Committee not only rebuked him publicly, but asked for a refund of our contribution because he had taken such an incredibly unlibertarian stance. When you police your own group, when you watch and you call people out for misbehavior, regardless of what letter comes after their name, you earn the respect not only of your opponents, I think, but you earn the respect of that center of the American population that chooses not to align with any political party. That's correct. That's correct. And I think that there, uh, there was an instance of this. I believe there was a, 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 a some white nationalist who tried to run on Libertarian's banner down in Florida, and the, the party quickly distanced himself from, from from that person. And that that kind of stuff is is perfectly it's it's legitimate. It is needed. It is necessary. Self policing of political identities and political parties is precisely what can I think prevent political parties from collapsing into a a, a sort of orgy of, of not of discord and nonsense. Um, but you mentioned something that was quite compelling. 
uh, a few moments ago. And this is something that I want more libertarians to talk about. And since you are indeed the head of the party at the moment, I would like to get your opinion on this matter. The very basic axiom that libertarians tout, the non-aggression principle, you know, uh, do not harm me. I do not harm you. If you, if you, if I, if you try to harm me, I harm you in defense, that kind of stuff. It's good. It's great. I, it's one of the things that I breathe and live ethically and philosophically. But I, I do, I, I do think that we don't, we don't, libertarians don't go beyond that in their uh, attempts to proselytize the glories of freedom. We never, uh, v- very few folks uh, in, in electoral politics who proclaim to be libertarian talk about the core need uh, of uh, of understanding natural rights, understanding the tradition behind natural rights, understanding in a, a sense of objective reality, because all of those things, however abstract they may be, however loosely related they may be to the to, to the political situation, do undergird and do necessitate uh, and are necessitated for the existence of the libertarian paradigm. So my question for you is this. How do you think the party can move into a direction of talking more about philosophy and which what the other two parties don't do at all? And in talking about philosophy, invoking it in a compelling way that doesn't make folks think this is lofty, this is abstract, this will never apply to me. So how do you bridge the, uh, the gap between the abstract forms of libertarians are trying to actualize consistently and constantly in their electoral politicking and the sort of spell of pragmatism? that has captured and ensued the American electorate in its bind. How do you do that? I think there's a, there's an excellent quote from one of the stoic philosophers about how, you know, they had these issues of philosophy and competing philosophical schools, cynicism, stoicism, Aristotelianism. Absolutely. Yes. And, Epictetus, who is one of my favorite philosophers, absolutely said, "Don't explain your philosophy; embody it." Mm-hmm. And the key mm-hmm. to being effective as a libertarian party, a libertarian candidate, in winning elections, in showing people uh, that there is another political option, the key to that is you have to embody libertarianism. You don't try to tell them what you believe. You show them what you believe, and then they will believe it too. Because showing is much more powerful than telling. And what you do is much more powerful than what you say. And mm-hmm. focusing on what people's needs are. You know, right. a lot of libertarians focus incorrectly in talking about why they're a libertarian or what is most important to them. And the more effective ones I've seen ask people questions about what their concerns are and give answers that meet their concerns, but they come from a libertarian place. They, they're answers that embody libertarianism in them, but are not a lecture or an attempt to get someone to change their mind about how they look at the world, just right. to understand that that candidate or that person you know, sitting across the bar from you has some good ideas for things that are important in your life. The issue of embodiment, or not the issue, but the concept of embodiment that you've just postulated is quite interesting to me because you're right. A, a, a good way to show folks, not only to show them that you 
to, to, that you have these principles, but to show them that you are serious about them, that you can actually, that they, they actually manifest in reality is indeed to embody them. But when you, when it comes to policy discussions, I mean, when it comes to discussions about how to do certain things vis-a-vis uh, -vis the mechanisms of government or not through the mechanisms of government at all, through the levels of society, there does come a point where mere embodiment can be open to interpretation, and it can be very vague and very nebulous as to what you're trying to convey. So when it comes into the policy realm, I suppose I'm asking, how does a libertarian effectively communicate the depth of the philosophical traditions that surround libertarianism while also remaining with their head above water? Because a lot of libertarians, from what I've observed, and I could be naive, I could just be uh, short-sighted, have simply said, yeah, nine agreement principle is great. Rights are good. That's what we need to focus on. But there's something critical missing there. If you, in my, and this is the same thing with the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. If you keep your political conversation on the surface, it will never get any deeper in the core of what you're trying to change. In the case of the Libertarian Party, trying to change the minds of the country from the two from the false god of two-party dualism is going to be incredibly hard to achieve. So in policy discussions, how do you manage to talk about these deep issues while still appealing to folks? What you do, and you know, one of the new projects that I have uh, is the Libertarian Policy Institute at libertarianpolicy.org, uh, where the next thing I want to do is provide policy positions that candidates and activists can use that start not from educating about the philosophy. There are some great libertarian think tanks that educate about the philosophy. I start from what are the biggest concerns in America? And our initial paper we put out was a libertarian response to COVID-19. And we look at the underlying problem and approach it from a libertarian perspective, where whatever the solution is, we want to minimize the amount of government force involved. We want to minimize the amount of laws and restrictions, while at the same time, minimizing the amount of excess death and disruption to our economy. Mm -hmm. And what that does is you still have to deal with problems. There are still hard problems in public policy, but you try and make sure the solution doesn't make more problems. And I think that's how we can talk to people about there's another way to solve the problem that doesn't involve a Republican or a Democrat giving huge kickbacks to special interests or subsidies. We can do it simpler. We can do it in a way that still solves <laughs> yeah. the problem, but takes less of your tax money and creates less corruption and less incentive for things. And, and so, Mr. Sar, would you say that that opens the door? That opens the door because when you appeal to folks like that, especially if they are the common man, and a majority of America, I genuinely believe, embody the spirit of the frontier, embody the spirit of the Midwest. And I, I, a majority of America embodies that sort of, that, that sort of, you know, can do, determine, grit, autonomous spirit, which upon which this republic was founded and, and birthed upon. Um, do you think that by appealing to their basic sense of self like that, by saying, yes, we have an effective method of doing these things that does not require us, the government, leeching off of you like we are so, uh, we are so want to do, that can be a gateway 
to injecting some of these deeper philosophical conversations about the in, in, into their into their um, sort of mind, into their consciousness. You think that could be a good gateway, a good a good segue? I think it can, and I think that in this current crisis, we've seen something that embodies this way of looking at government that is important in opening the door to people to consider thinking about things from a libertarian perspective, and that is government can't make things faster or better. Government's not good at action. Government's good at slowing things down. They're good at making things hard. They're good at putting up barriers. And we saw this with the terrible testing response. Scientists and doctors were working so hard to try and respond to this pandemic crisis. And in their way, every time was the Food and Drug Administration saying, You can't release that test until it goes through a long approval process. We won't let you import masks that can protect people because they didn't get the approval process. Right. Right. Exactly. And and I even I I recently wrote about this particular thing. Um, gay men were being up until a few uh, a month or so ago, actually early April. Um, gay men were restricted who had who had sexual intercourse within the past year were restricted from donating blood, which which did not help the blood cry, blood shortage that that, that COVID nineteen helped accelerate. Now we've narrowed it down to three months, which is still too much in my opinion. But you're right; the government does indeed stand in uh, stand in the way of any sort of creative uh, private action that could possibly solve these issues much better. Right. And, and then that's the, the mind opener that you can get from an individual policy where you say, look, there used to be a restriction where alcohol couldn't be bought from a restaurant and delivered or taken out of the restaurant because we had to make sure you consumed it on premises. Mm-hmm. And now with the emergency here up in New Hampshire, the governor said, well, you can sell takeout alcohol. That's okay right now. And what you have to show people is nothing bad has happened from that. So maybe that regulation doesn't need to get put back when we move past this and we, we get to a more normal place. Maybe some of these things that go away need to stay away. And if that regulation going away made my life better, not worse, what other government barriers going away might make my life better, not worse? Yes. Now, now, now Mr. Now, particularly as it relates to COVID, Mr. Sarwark, do you believe that the lockdowns that we've been seeing so many state governors uh, issue and, and snare around the necks of Americans and then now recently um, scale back, do you believe they are just uses of government power? Yes or no? That's not a yes or no question. Okay, please feel free to elaborate. Governors, mayors, most of them run for office because they care about the people that they serve, at least at some level. Even if they maybe are corrupt, they still can say the words. Our current president is an exception to that rule, but most politicians care. And what you have here is an infectious pandemic that got out of control in this country because of a botched government response, where the CDC and the FDA sent out faulty tests, not enough tests, and wouldn't allow new tests, where the federal government spent months delaying and playing down and telling people to do terrible things, quashing information from from government scientists, actually, saying, 
you know, people shouldn't get on planes or cruises. And the administration would stop them from saying that publicly, increasing the spread mm-hmm. of an infectious disease to the point that from a scientific and a medical perspective, there was a fear that we would be overrun. And we were in fact overrun in comparison to any country that responded with speed to a new infectious disease. And so the question isn't whether or not it's a just use of government power to respond in the in this way of locking everything down because the situation is out of control. The question right. is whose heads should roll for the fact that they put us in a situation where people are having to make that choice between locking people down and people dying because it's government that made the problem in the first place. And that's the discussion we need to have more so than second guessing whether or not a particular governor or mayor is doing the right thing. Now it is important that when you look at these policies, they need to be based on science. They need to be based on things like people who are close together with air that they're breathing together are more likely to transmit a disease that they don't even know they have. But that's a matter of how far apart you are from somebody, not what kind of store you're in. So if you're that far Mm -hmm. apart in a grocery store, you can be that far apart in an art supply store, and you can be that far apart in in a restaurant, frankly. You can... Now, restaurants are an interesting case because the inside of a restaurant is the same air and you stay there for a long time near other people. But one of the things they're doing here in New Hampshire is very innovative, is opening up some restaurants to allow sit-down service in open, flowing air outside because the weather is getting better. And that's a scientific response, right? That's not a random thing like Michigan Governor Whitmer, where she says, you're not allowed to go out on a boat on a lake by yourself. Yes. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's madness. Yeah. So the, the, oh, yes. I approach this question from the perspective of people who lose jobs will hurt, but could get other jobs when things are better. But people who die can never get another job. And so we have to have a certain perspective of what is most important. You know, this word essential gets bandied around during this crisis. And I don't approve of a government saying what's essential because that depends on the individual. But I do approve of all of us taking the opportunity to reflect when something changes the world for everyone, whether you're rich or poor young or old, an inmate or a corrections guard, the virus doesn't care. And we are all now people. And we need to take a chance to think about what is essential to us. And what is it that we could maybe not focus on in our lives? It should be an individual value judgment, you're saying. Right. But is it what essentiality? Informed right. by good scientific data and good information presented clearly. If there's any role for the government in a pandemic crisis, it is to give clear information to people so they can make good choices for themselves and others. Because people come together in crises and they care for each other 
But when you get governments lying and saying masks don't help, and then turning around and saying masks do help, yes. when you lie to people, it's not forgivable and you don't get that trust back. People will forgive mistakes, but they don't forgive lies. And this administration is made up of liars. And that's why it's so important that the Libertarian Party put up a candidate who will tell the truth. Because if we start with the truth, we can have a valid, honest discussion about values and goals. But if we start with lies and attacks and fear that the other candidate might be worse, we will be ruled by fear and make bad choices for ourselves and our children and our country. You have a very inspirational cadence about how you speak, Mr. Sarwak. I can see why you've won three terms consecutively. <laughs> Serious, I can see. I can absolutely see. Um, Practice makes so, perfect, Christian. You'll get there too. <laughs> I can see. Goodness sakes. No, but everything, everything you said was absolutely spot on. I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, I would ask you about two more things and I'll let you go. I appreciate your time so much. Con now, again, this issue of public health is very, 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 very hard for libertarians to grapple with. Even I myself, I, I am a very philosophically libertarian. I am grappling with this in ways unimaginable. I feel like I am Hercules wrestling something right now. Because on one hand, if you do adhere to the non-aggression principle, and you do indeed believe that uh, protecting other people's lives is essential as a part of as part of the trifecta of natural liberty, life, liberty, and property, as Bastiat said, then you must admit that being knowingly infected around someone could pose a danger to your life, especially if they're a high-risk person. So this comes to the question about contract contact tracing. So just very briefly, what do you th- what do you think? What is the Libertarian Party's position on the idea of contact tracing? If it were, if it comes to someone possibly getting infected or possibly having been around someone who was infected and having a risk of being infected because of that person, do you think is justified for the government or a private firm enabled by the government to come in and trace everyone who's been around that person and then inform everyone of their business? Contact tracing is an effective way to isolate and contain outbreaks, especially of a disease like this one, where there's a long incubation period. And it's hard for me to remember, you know, what I did, uh, you know, a week ago, what day did I meet with so-and-so and and which restaurant did I get lunch from? So, and those are things that just slip your mind and they're not important to remember. And then you find out that you have an infectious disease and you could have hurt other people. And now it's all of a sudden important to remember and you don't remember. So there's a group of scientists at MIT that have created something, I believe it's called Safe Paths. And there's a link to it in one of the footnotes in my COVID-19 paper on libertarianpolicy.org, where your phone keeps track of where you are and where other users of that program, where they were. And if you find that you were infected, you can authorize the system to share your location data with the network. And then that would inform other people who have that contact tracing app on their phone that they had been exposed to you. But it would be your choice whether or not to reveal the information. 
and you wouldn't know who got notified. It's a, it's a secure and private way to do contact tracing without having that be something that the government has or a large corporation has. It's something you have that you can choose to share that information. And that's, that is the way it should be. Your medical records are your own. And we cannot force you to give up that right to privacy because we want to make you be a good person. We can encourage mm-hmm. you to care about your fellow man. You know, we don't make you get HIV tested before you're allowed to have sexual relations with someone. And we don't make you, if you get found to have a sexually transmitted disease from your doctor, we don't make you tell the people that you've had relations with. But good people Mm -hmm. do that because it's responsible and because they care about others. And that's, I think, kind of how contact tracing should be um, dealt with. And it, it is a good tool in the toolbox, but we need to provide these solutions that let people control their own rights so that the government or a large corporation doesn't create a solution that takes away our rights when the rights don't have to be taken away for effective public health. The information just needs to be easily available for people to share with each other. Absolutely. One last thing before I let you go. Um, I I saw a Monmouth University poll that came out today. Justin Amash is pulling at 5% in a three-way matchup between Biden and Trump and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, I, I understand that it is cus- it is custom for party chairs to stay out of these processes until they've been completed. So I'm not going to ask you to make any sort of st- um, endorsement or whatever. But I just do, – do you think whatever happens, whoever the nominee ends up being this year, do you think that this is going to be the year that the Libertarian Party – has a massive breakthrough and enters into the and, and enters into the electoral consciousness on a national scale for a very long time. Do you think this is going to be the year? This year, this year is something I've been thinking about for a long time. Because in 2016, a lot of people told us the reason we did so well was not because we had good quality candidates. It was because the two old parties ran the most hated people in America against us. And that that was the sort of perfect storm and luck that you could never duplicate. And I agreed with them when I talked to political analysts. I said, yeah, some of that, we got an assist from the two candidates in the last election. They helped us do better tripling our previous party's record. But there's also an inherent value to the quality of those candidates who ran, Governor Johnson and Governor Weld, two experienced former governors with more executive experience than the other two combined. I have to admit to being wrong. They did it again. They ran (laughs) the two most hated well, not hated. <laughs> they ran, so it's not quite oh the same. They're going to run one of those two most hated people, now the most hated person potentially in America. <laughs> and then they're running uh, 
a slightly out of touch older guy who has spent 23 years trying to win his first primary state who's hiding in his basement in Delaware from sexual assault allegations. So I think it's going to be a pretty good year for the Libertarian Party. And I think (laughs) the potential is there if things go right, that the Libertarian Party could elect a president before it elects a congressman. I I agree with you. I, I think that's correct. I, I think that 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 if this if the party plays its cards right, I think we could be seeing a libertarian president sooner than we think. In my opinion, my honest opinion. Um, Mr. Starwalk, it is a pleasure. We need to do this again. I appreciate having you on. Um, thank you for taking your time and coming on to talk with me about this stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Christian. It's been a pleasure to be chairman of the party um, and and get to be the honor of being able to talk to people like you has been uh, one of the greatest things in my life. And I hope to talk again sometime and be well, be safe, be good to to, to the people in your life. Look for the helpers, help the helpers and keep doing what you're doing. Uh, It's so valuable. Thank you so much. And everyone else, thank you. Stay safe, stay pensive, and I will see you later.